Right, so my name's Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Um, so some questions came up during the break. Uh, the first one is, I think, uh, a specific question um, coming out of the uh, essay groups round here where, well, it's just south of here, where, in Hackney and Stamford Hill, where you have a lot of people coming from a particular uh, uh, community, but this uh, this applies this applies elsewhere as well. So that this applies with um, you know certain parts of London are, are associated with particular social groups, and that um, and to do with class or, or sexuality or, or all sorts of things. And one of one of the difficulties that you can have in an AA group is that um, they can become cliquey, so that the group reflects a particular social demographic or a particular ethnic group or a particular this or a particular that. And what the traditions have to say on that, uh, I've already touched upon this a tiny bit about the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Um, and uh, whereas it, AA membership will never depend on uh, conformity. And tradition six um, is about uh, um, um, not associating yourself with anything on the outside. So not associating yourself with any with if you have a, come from a particular background or particular religion, you leave that background on the religion, the, the the ideas from that background at the door. Uh, in Al-Anon, it's very interesting. Um, they actually have a pamphlet on this. A lot of people go to Al-Anon. Does anyone else here go to Al-Anon? Anyone else? Okay. It's very, it's, it's very interesting. If you're alcoholics or addicts in your life, then Al-Anon might help. Uh, if, you go to, if you qualify for a 12-step fellowship, you're going to be surrounded by alcoholics and addicts the whole time. So uh, you end up qualifying for Al-Anon even if you didn't already. If you have no, no one in your family is an alcoholic or an addict, you know, a few months in here, you'll be, you'll be desperate for Al-Anon without even knowing it. You just think you're mad, but no, maybe you need Al-Anon. But one of the things they say in Al-Anon is um, uh, you probably come into Al-Anon having been to some other 12-step fellowship and leave the hat of that fellowship at the door. So never mention in Al-Anon that you also go to AA or you also go to NA or you also go to SLA or you also go to whatever. And so to leave those other things at the door is, is Tradition 6. And Tradition 10 talks about having no opinion on outside issues. I, and that works either positively or negatively. And whether one, one of the questions came in in the break was about um, people bringing in old ideas of, of uh, religion. And a really good example is, I know a friend of mine is a Jesuit priest. So he, he was ordained as a Jesuit priest in the 1970s. He's been in AA for 41 years now and in Al-Anon for 39 years. And you'd think as a Jesuit priest he'd be going on about God a lot. He, he often doesn't use the word God in meetings. He only says higher power because that's the language of the talks. You know, the most neutral language in the AA literature is talking about a higher power and not God. And I think the solution to this problem, if it's getting... Um, if groups are getting cliquey so that it's going to be hard for people that are from different backgrounds to come in. Um, there are a couple of lines from the big book which really help. The first one is on page, 
I won't be able to find it now. Oh, here we go. Um, most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions are attitudes which make us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So that whenever, you're, whenever I'm sharing in an AA meeting, I always imagine that there is someone in the corner who is new to AA how would I be able to communicate in such a way as to reach someone who's completely different from me, who has no experience of AA, who has all sorts of prejudices and predetermined ideas, to reach across the barriers and to talk... If you imagine talking to them as opposed to talking to your pals, it changes things completely. And one of the great principles of AA is... Um, um, to always put yourself in the other person's shoes. And it's here on page 90. Um, and this is when you're 12th stepping someone. Um, have a talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition and his religious leanings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you would like to you would like him to approach you if the tables were turned. So when you've got a newcomer that walks into the room and they're clearly from a different background or a different uh, setting, different experiences, you put yourself in their shoes and you share in such a way as to try and reach them, and it so it solves the problems of difference. Um, the other question which came up about was about when you have a relatively small fellowship with um, in a particular area with maybe two dozen, three dozen people going to meetings and of course you want meetings every day, you need a meeting every day <laughs> and so you end up with seven meetings in the area, one a night with maybe three people at each one and the risk is you all turn up and you think oh it's you again, ugh and <laughs> and that you know they're thinking the same about you and you think whatever I share they've heard it a thousand times before why are we even why are we here and uh, I think that our um, uh, there are two uh, two answers to that the first one uh, if you're in AA there are good what, 950 meetings in London a week and public information is handled by intergroup and region and the national subcommittees and some groups do public information but AA is just going to get new people coming in without anyone in any group lifting a finger. If you're in a small fellowship and the, in your area there are 30, 40, 50 people there, if your efforts as a fellowship are focused on carrying the message of your fellowship to your entire community, you're going to be too busy working out how to do that to start getting... It takes, the, it takes the focus off yourself and it takes the focus off each other because you have a bigger project which is to help the huge numbers of people outside there. Um, and if that's the focus of the fellowship as a whole, it changes the focus of the group. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in... <laughs> There's a line in um, A Vision for You where it talks, I think, where is it? Let's see if I can find it. Um, it talks ab about the early AA meetings 
and where people were constantly thinking about how, I won't be able to find it, how they could carry this message to other people, how they could present this message to newcomers. Um, and so the focus is not how are we going to help ourselves in this little group of three people, it's how can we carry this message to the outside world. Um, in order to prepare for that, again, to take the focus off uh, each other, one thing that you can do is think about um, group formats. For so most, most groups of AA, I'm sure it's true with most other fellowships, someone does a chair at the beginning and speaks for about 15 minutes about this or that, and everyone else chips in and says, you, well, I've had this experience and I've had that experience. Um, that gets really dull if there are only 30 of you. <laughs> um, and you need something else to focus on. And so the aim is to, uh, and Al-Anon has this problem a lot because it's a much smaller fellowship. So their solution is to have literature-based meetings. So uh, uh, most Al-Anon meetings are going to have some basis in the literature. Most good Al-Anon meetings anyway have some basis in the literature. And the way to handle a group format if there are only three of you, rather than each of you just talking about your day for 20 minutes, um, that your basic format is this, and this is this is a group format for a small group uh, 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 um, in a small fellowship. You take a piece of literature, for instance, the Big Book, or the Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions, or or the Language of the Heart is another good AA book, and you say, right, we're going to read a paragraph each. I'm going to read a paragraph, I'm going to share for two minutes. If anyone else wants to share on that paragraph, they come in. And then we read another paragraph and another paragraph. So you've got something for your mind to think about other than your day and your problems and your emotions and all of those things. It's, it's, it gives you some focus. And then if you're doing that and you're doing lots of public information work, there will be new people coming in. And that, that will give it energy. So, the, so you're not sitting there looking at each other for an hour a day, you know, the same people. You're actually focusing on learning and developing ideas. And, and that will help your own recoveries as well. I found that when I go to loads of literature-based meetings and people are talking about the steps, it makes me work my own steps. If I'm not hearing about it in the meetings, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen. So those are some ideas, I and mean, we can talk more about that afterwards. Um, any other thoughts before we go on to the topic of the traditions in other areas? Yeah, I guess I'm Andy. Yes. Um, a few things, a few points. One is um, the, the, the topic you talked about um, being the small, uh, you know, uh, not many people mm. um, attending meetings and how to how to create interest on the on the meetings and stuff. Yeah. I'm repeating myself about the day. Um, I think another another problem of, 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 of uh, which you didn't touch is um, should 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 we focus on on building one 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 meeting which one or two good meetings a week or have set meetings which are more weak because the, 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 the experiences and you might say that we can change it is that if we have every day a meeting it's not it's not as strong as having one or two good meetings which people are more committed because somehow people people are not committing to, to, to every night, you know I mean so what happens is it gets weak. That's one point. Um, another point um, you said about um, you said about uh, 
in Alamon you, you, you've asked to leave the, your uh, religious and your background and, and back when you come in. I, I find that, I, I don't know what the balance is because at the end of the day, you know, when you come to a meeting and you share about your life, as you said, you know, if, if, if you're religious or if you or if you belong to someone, you go through some things which are related to that. So if you if you can't share about that, so you don't share about what's going on. You know what I mean? If if I don't even understand what I mean. No idea. Yeah, that makes sense. Correct. So like. You know, if I if I if I give an example, I've been to a meetings for Christmas, so they were talking about Christmas. Although it's not a it's not a everyone I don't know exactly, but right, but it's something which going on in their life, so they're talking about it, right? So I don't know what the balance is. That's a there's a really good point there about um, what you bring into your sharing and how you present it. And I got Tom um, this this. A friend of mine gave me some incredibly helpful advice, which is whenever you're talking about what is going on out there, and what maybe what is going on out there, maybe you want to share about your job. Um, one helpful thing when sharing about your job is to be uh, the phrase he uses is specific, not explicit, um, and that's actually it's a helpful phrase for the sex and love fellowships as well, to be specific about what is going on but not so explicit that it triggers people. Um, so you can talk about you can talk about your job, you can talk about your family, you can talk about you can talk about religious events you've been to, but you bring in details which are relevant to make the point. And the question is, how can I give enough detail so that people understand what I'm talking about without alienating people that don't identify? And the point about the leaving like religion at the door, uh, one of the things that I was at a meeting once where um, someone uh, was saying, oh, apart from being an alcoholic, I'm a recovering Catholic, and everyone laughed. And a friend of mine had brought a newcomer, and the newcomer was a very devout Catholic. And after the meeting, they said, is it safe for me to come to AA as a Catholic or am I going to get aggravation from people because I'm religious? So it's, it works both. It's not just bringing pro-religious ideas into the meeting, it's bringing anti-religious ideas into the meeting. Both are against the traditions. So the question is, how can I communicate to anyone, whoever they are? And that's, that's, how, that's how I work out how to draw the line. The one thing about the, is it best to have one group... Um, uh, uh, one really strong meeting a week or seven. There are, there are two ways of coming at it. Some parts of uh, the world of recovery, they'll have um, a group which has multiple meetings. So the group will meet, several, but it's one group, but it meets several times a week. And the group has to be self-supporting across those different meetings. Others will say, no, each meeting is its own group. And then uh, if you have the latter, so each meeting is its own group. Each needs to be financially self-supporting. So it needs to be paying rent. So it should never, ever take free accommodation from somewhere. So if people appreciate it enough to put enough money in the pot to pay the rent, then that, is the te that, that, that will 
destroy that principle destroys bad meetings and preserves good ones because if people want it they'll pay for it if they don't want it enough to pay for it the group folds automatically so you never need to decide whether or not it's worth it the finances will do it for you um, but uh, I think the, that's something for each of those like mini groups to ask Are we, is this the best way for us to carry the message so if they have group consciences, no one can tell you what's best there, but that group can say, would it be best for us to dissolve this group and for us to attend other meetings and help make those strong? And you ask yourself, who are we reaching? Who are we talking to? Who are we helping? Thank you. Another point that you, you, you touched was, was saying was saying by, by trying and, and working on a bigger and on the on on PI or bringing other people in. My question is if the if, if it's a group of people who don't have much recovery, you know what I mean? So is the is is it time is it time to, to get some people in and saying to them what 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 are, what are the message you're gonna carry? That we're addicts and then three and three of, of five people is the life shit. I mean or I show them the big book, I mean... Where, where's the line? I'm trying to find... Here we go. Um, God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. Um, one of the things about the way um, the program was designed originally back in the 1930s was the steps were designed to be done very quickly over a matter of weeks, not over 10 years, with the idea that you go through the first nine steps in, in a few weeks, it, it will be rough and ready, you won't get every little detail, every little bit of your childhood won't be examined to the nth degree. You know, you have the rest of your life to sort all of that stuff out, but you need to get some solid recovery under your belt. And um, uh, when Bill and Bob started AA, when they got together in June 1935, within a few weeks of um, um, Bob getting sober, they were already at the hospital every day helping other, um, helping other alcoholics. So uh, I suppose if you're saying, well, we haven't got enough recovery, the, 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 I think the relevant word here is on page 63. When, when you've taken step three, it says, next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. So the action is all there to be taken, it can be taken quickly. So that's easily solved in a few weeks. If you as a group don't have enough recovery to be attractive under traditional level to the outside, sort it out. It doesn't take long. <laughs> Just a matter of willingness. And, and I tell you, one, one thing that's interesting, it's on, is it 263? Yes. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was lucky, I think, more than anything. Um, Okay, so this is from one of the early AA members. It's the story he sold himself short. Um, the day before I was due to go back to Chicago, this is a man who'd been introduced to AA, I think, in Cleveland or at, probably Akron, because it's Dr. Bob. So he'd heard about AA, 
He goes to visit Dr. Bob. This is mid-30s. The day before I was due to go back to Chicago, it was Dr. Bob's afternoon off. He had me to the office, and this is the line which surprises people, and he had me to the office and we spent three or four hours formally going through the six-step programme as it was at that time. The six steps were complete deflation, dependence and guidance from a higher power, moral inventory, confession, restitution, continued work with other alcoholics. Dr. Bob led me through all of these steps at the moral inventory. Now this is, so Dr. Bob is his sponsor at this point. He's known him for about eight minutes, but he is his sponsor. Um, At the moral inventory, he, that's Dr. Bob, brought up several of my bad personality traits or character defects. Wouldn't you just love a sponsor that you, you've only just met them and they, they tell you what your defects of character are, such as selfishness, <laughs> conceit, jealousy, carelessness, intolerance, ill temper, sarcasm and resentments. We went over these at great length. Now, at great length means within this three or four hours. Um, And then he finally asked me if I wanted these defects of character removed. When I said yes, we both knelt at his desk and prayed, each of us asking to have the eat. So they both did this together. They both said, please remove these defects. So it's not you must do this, it's we're going to do this. Uh, Each of us asking to have these defects taken away. Um, And he goes off to Chicago and starts AA in Chicago. There you go. So... (laughs) So don't be fooled by how a lot of recovery, you know, it's all very gentle and very slow. That's one way of doing it, but it's not the only way of doing it. There are ways of approaching this rapidly to get some rapid results. Read the AA AA history books because they'll tell you a lot. If, If you're starting a new fellowship, if you're in an SA is a relatively new fellowship, even SLA is a relatively new fellowship, relatively few meetings in London compared to AA. OA is in a similar position as well, with, with relatively few meetings compared to AA. It's still in its pioneering days. If you want to know how to run those fellowships successfully, don't look at what AA is doing at like 80 years. Look at what AA was doing at 10 years and 20 years, because they, they were going then through what you are going through now in those fellowships. You'll find much more useful information, I think. Because AA is big and complacent. I shouldn't say that on tape, but it is. <laughs> There we go. So should we cover, and we've got about 25 minutes left, uh, how to apply the traditions in the rest of our lives. Um, so I'm going to start off, and I think you've got some experience on this as well, so I'm going to bring um, you. So, there might be a question. Oh, okay. Can I ask one thing? Before? Yeah. Um, we experience sometimes in groups that people, how is that, that we move a disruptive, how would you deal with people that are disruptive? Oh. Because I had one experience, somebody was, they had, he had a fight with the chair at the beginning, I interrupt, like I didn't interrupt. I shared back that these behaviors don't belong in the meeting. It's dangerous to newcomers. And he attacked me like afterwards in the meeting, and it's like really nobody. We didn't really know how to handle the situation because he's he's sometimes causing trouble in meetings. So it's like how to handle people that don't really think logically. Okay. I haven't got a copy here. I should have brought one. But the AA was it an AA group? NA. NA. Um, the AA service handbook, there are two handbooks on AA in Great Britain. One is a service handbook, one is a structure handbook. 
and I think it's the structure handbook has got um, how to deal with um, uh, dangerous, difficult, harassing, predatory people <laughs> in meetings. So there's a whole thing on there. But I'm going to cover some, uh, so we can go and read that later. Um, um, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? Could you get a, a mailing list going? Then I can send a whole load of stuff out. And I can screenshot some of the stuff and send, put it in a folder online and give people links to it. But the principles, so Tradition 3 says you can't exclude someone from AA or NA or whatever. And so, and this is something that sometimes people will use and say, you, you can't throw me out, I have a right to be here. And everyone thinks, oh dear, well we're stuck with this bad behaviour because this, we can't throw this person out. Now what Tradition 3 says is that the only requirement for membership of AA is a desire to stop drinking. It doesn't say the only requirement for attendance of this group is a desire to stop drinking. So you can't um, ban someone from AA, but you can suspend someone's right to attend a group under tradition one. So common welfare comes first. And if the common welfare is threatened by the behaviour, genuinely threatened by the behaviour of one person, then it's legitimate to exclude that person. Now you've got two types of disruptive person. You've got people who are, uh, for whatever reason, right now malevolent. So they've got bad intent, they're aggressive, they're violent, they're angry, uh, all of that. The other situation, you've just got someone who's drunk, or high, or stoned, or mentally ill, and they don't mean any harm, but they're just really causing a problem. With that second type of person, where they're just drunk, and they keep wanting to share every four seconds, and they're tipping beer all over the floor, and all of that sort of stuff, um, there's a, a page on Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers where it says, what, obviously, if you've got a problem in AA or NA, I can guarantee they had that same problem in the 1930s, and they wrote down what they did. And what they did, when they've got a drunk person, in, if the drunk person sits in the meeting sort of quietly shaking, that's absolutely fine. If they're disruptive, Four, four people go and take this person, sit with them outside, have a like a mini meeting. So the person is kept within, like hugged by the group, but they're prevented from um, disrupting the group. If you've got, so the meeting can still take place, but you're still looking after the drunk person. So you're not excluding the drunk person. When someone is, is violent or malevolent, um, the responsibility and this is under concept one, lies with the whole group. So the whole group is responsible for dealing with it. But you've got an officer, let's say the secretary, at the front of the meeting, who's running the group. They've, they're the ones who delegated the job to, to handle the crazy person. Um, and one thing that you need to do, if, if you've got a group where, or something that I've done in groups which has worked really well, is you have a group conscience. If you regularly have a disruption or there's a risk, you, you know someone's on their way, sometimes you know someone's on their way. Um, you know, someone says they're going to come next week and cause trouble. You have a group conscience and you authorise the secretary to ask someone to pipe down. So it's not the person, it's not the AA member, it's the person saying, I've been asked on behalf of the group 
to maintain order. So I have the authority of the group. So, and that has a completely different effect. They're not one person against another, but the group has decided. And then if you've got someone who is potentially violent or dangerous, um, there was one I belonged to, again, lesbian group many years ago, where uh, uh, four, les four, four very aggressive lesbians were appointed <laughs> as the bouncers. The gay men were hopeless. Um, but those, those lesbians, they just went straight in. And they were, they, they were at the ready for the secretary to say, right, you need to deal with... And they got up and they took the disruptive person out and sat with them. So they didn't sort of kick him out in the street. They sat and said, do you want to talk? You can't go in there because you're disrupting people. You're disrupting what is going on. But we'll sit and talk with you. Do you want to, do you want to sit and talk with us until the end of the meeting? So that there is, a, there is authority in the group and there is a mechanism for handling the dangerous person. Um, and uh, there is no hesitation to call the police if necessary. So you, um, uh, and I had that, uh, we had that at Brick Lane a few weeks ago where we called the police at fellowship and um, a group of people supported me in doing it and it was, it was dealt with. But you need to have the group prepped for when that happens. Um, and if you've, got the serv if you've got the structure manual, it really helps because then it's the authority of AA behind you. It's not just one person's opinion. Does that help? Good. Okay. Oh, um, hi, Jenny, I've got it. Um, it's another lip. Um, I, I'm sorry, I missed quite a lot of that. Um, but I, um, I heard you said that you were about to go into how the traditions apply to yes. the individual or how you can implement them in your life. Because we were at, on Wednesday, the um, 12 and 12 from Bethany Green, and um, it's something that my sponsor was saying to me for quite a while, you know, like, if you take out the, the AA from the traditions, it's like, Jenny should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, you know, and that's like self-supporting financially, emotionally, all this stuff. So I started to read that lady who, who gave the chair, the lady's um, pack that, that's from, I think, Al-Anon, um, and it's really, really interesting. But, like, is that something in your experience, like... Can you, like, for example, I would love to be able to, like, yeah, apart from use the steps to work on my own conduct, to, like, bring that kind of ethos to, like, a band, a work environment, like, and also to, like, human relationships. Because I realise, like, all my human relationships still, even, like, I've gone through the steps and doing them again in another fellowship that, um, yeah, like, I still can't implement those things, like, equality, do you know what I mean? So I, I expect that you're going to like go through them. But it says in the um, traditions like about how um, either finding yourself being like the dominating, controlling person or like the over-dependent. Like I'm find I'm like constantly in my life, in my relationships, I'm either like submitting to somebody else, wanting them to take responsibility for me, or I'm like taking responsibility for myself and then everybody else as well and I would like to learn just how to be like have more humility and more equality and I think that starts with like interpersonal relationships maybe you could expand on that what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell a story I've just been on holiday with some people I'm going to tell a story about how we some of us were in AA and some of us weren't and we had a problem and we solved it using the traditions 
uh, and it was like a textbook case of how to do it and luckily we thought of it in time before it got the problem got too serious I, it was just one we could talk for hours about how to apply the traditions they are how I handle relationships with other people um, but the example was this um, so a group of us are on holiday a nice sunny destination Costa del Sol nothing too fancy <laughs> and um, we go out for dinner in the evening of course and um, uh, most of the party wanted to eat at around 8 o'clock, 8.30 and go, well, the sun was setting at 10 o'clock so you, you want to be going to eat when there's, there's still a little bit of dusk out, it's not completely pitch dark all the restaurants are still open but there was one person that would uh, say, oh I'll be ready at 8.30, I'll be ready at 9 and then 9.45 we're all looking at the, our watches and we're looking over at this this person who's just sort of sitting on the edge of the bed and someone said, what, what is he doing over there? I don't know what he's doing over there. But, but anyway, what would happen every day is we wouldn't get to the restaurant till 10.15 or 10.30. And so we'd get back to the hotel completely exhausted at half past midnight. And just it was, it was night after night this was happening. We hadn't agreed to eat at 10.30. It just kept happening. Because one person was dragging it out and dragging it out and dragging it out. And one of the parties said, right, I'm not having this. I'm just going to go and eat on my own. If you want to come, if you want to come and eat with me at eight o'clock, you can come and eat with me at eight o'clock. And I thought, oh God, this is a disaster because now this group of people is going to go off and eat at eight o'clock. The people that want to eat at 11 o'clock are going to be pissed off at the people that are eating at eight o'clock. We're going to end up with two groups of people and, and everyone in the middle is going to have to choose, am I going to eat with group A and piss off group B or am I going to eat with group B and piss off group A Night is a nightmare and uh, so there was a risk of everyone getting angry with everyone else and people having to pick sides so we waited until we were all in the car together and this is great because once the car I made sure that we didn't start the conversation until the car was moving so, you see, once the car's moving, no one can get out, can they? At least not easily. So, you think, well, this is a really good time to have a group conscience, isn't it? So, let's have... So, uh, the group conscience topic was raised. When, as a group, are we going to have dinner? And the idea... First of all, we said, do you think... I think it would be really great if we continued to all have dinner together for the rest of the holiday. That was the first thing we agreed. So tradition one, let's all stick together, right? So that was agreed. And then um, someone said, well, I think it would be nicer to eat earlier. So when we get back from, from dinner, we've got time to unwind before we go to bed. And lots of the other voices said, yeah, that's what we'd like to do too. And the one person who was the reason why all of this was being... Um, uh, brought up in the first place was completely outmaneuvered, and we actually said, "Well, why do you like to? Why why do you want to eat so late?" And he said, "Well, I like to go for a run in the evening." And we said, "Well, why don't you go for a run a bit earlier?" And it was all brought out into the open. So rather than passive aggressive behaviour and manipulation, people were forced to state what they wanted. They were forced to state what they needed, and then. In Concept 12, it talks about discussion, vote, and substantial unanimity. 
And there was a bit of discussion about, well, should we eat at 8? Should we eat at 8.30? And we finally agreed. We got everyone to agree that we would leave for dinner at between 8 and 8.30. And one person said, and if I'm not ready, then I'll just catch you up later. And there was a bit of tension that night, but then the rest of the holiday was perfect and everyone abided by the group conscience and we managed to keep it together. Now, it's a stupid, tiny little example, but it's the principle of unity in tradition one. It's the principle of having a group conscience in tradition two where everyone is forced to put out onto the table what they want. So there's no manipulation there. It's just communicated and concept 12 discussion vote substantial unanimity completely solved the problem is that an example that sort of helps yeah it does i think um i don't know like, i mean i've missed quite a lot of it but um yeah i just it's that thing isn't it where like i agree with you like that's something i'm more likely to do is like force people to have a discussion <laughs> but at the same time like i'm learning in the other program that i'm working it's like We've got to be communicative, so you know, and in a calm way, which it sounds like it was, and let other people do what they want to do, which sounds like it did, and there is an overall agreement, which there was, but still, I feel like, I feel like how how do you do that in like in, it it was quite informal. Like they were all shut in the car. Do you just have to be really strategic? Like I, then I would start to guilt myself that I'm being manipulative. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. And then there's other sides of the thing that say like, oh, you should just, you know, like when it actually happens. Like I'm confused because yeah, like obviously AA says quite clearly like that. And then this other program that I'm doing sometimes is like, but you should just like, express what you feel in the moment and <laughs> that's like saying to the person say when they were lagging behind when it was actually happening i'd like to eat sooner as an individual so i'm confused but i don't know the funny thing was we tried that latter thing and it didn't work that's didn't why work. we had to get in a group to okay. discuss it so it's, it was, the, work, it was the, the last thing we wanted to do, but it had to be done at the Sometimes end of the day. Sometimes it has to be done like that. One of the other, the main ways that I applied the, the um, uh, one of the main ways I applied the traditions, uh, I don't know about anyone else, but I can get really wrapped up in work. And I can get my identity wrapped up in work. So if my work is going well, I feel great about myself. If my work is going badly, I feel terrible about myself. I can get wrapped up in my financial position, so if I'm earning well, I feel great about myself. If I'm earning badly, anything threatening my finances, anything threatening my job, um, it's a terrible problem. And there's um, a line on, um, it's page 288 of, of As Bill Sees It, which has got some very good readings in it, so I find it a very helpful book, where it says that almost every uh, emotional upset comes from having an unhealthy emotional dependence and an associated demand. And what I've been taught to do is to do a couple of things. The first thing is Tradition 6. It says we mustn't lend the AA name to any outside activity or enterprise. So um, in my job, to stop me being attached to it, I 
use step three in tradition six. So step three says, I'm not working for myself, I'm going to have my own business, but I'm not working for myself, I'm working for my higher power. My higher power delegates down to me daily tasks to run my business, but it's not my business, it's God's business. And then, is no skin off my nose, because I'm getting, I, I get the rewards of service from my higher power, not from my, not from my job. And my identity is I'm a creation of that higher power. I'm not my job, I'm not my background, I'm not my this, I'm not my financial position. So tradition six is all about detachment. So my primary purpose in tradition five is to serve and be helpful and be useful. And tradition six, I'm not gonna lend my name, which is my identity to those things. And if I do anything well, this is where tradition 12 comes in, and I say that um, um, if, I'm, if I do something well because I have an ability, well, I didn't give myself that ability, so I'm not going to take the credit for it. And that's, the anon that's anonymity in practice. And I got tipped off, I've been helped by a lot of people over the years who actually actively apply the traditions in their life. Uh, and it's just like the steps you need to be taken through, you need to be shown how to apply the traditions in a situation. So some people have a tradition sponsor, some people have a service sponsor who takes them through the concepts, and it's completely legitimate to do that, to have um, a sponsor for the steps and so other people you go to for traditions and concepts. But some people are just better on the traditions than others. But there's a wonderful woman in, in AA who's been sober, in London, who's been sober since the early 70s, who had, she, she had a business, she started her own business when she was a few years sober, and she was immensely successful. She made loads of money, but as with lots of businesses, certain things come into fashion, and then they go out of fashion again. And the business that she ran just went out of fashion. There was no longer any demand for it, and she eventually shut it down. And she was at a meeting. She'd shared about it. It was at her home group. Everyone knew all about her life. And this woman... This woman went to her and she said, she said, Pauline, I'm, I'm so impressed. And Pauline said, well, why are you impressed? Well, you failed. You failed and yet you're still so cheerful. <laughs> and she said, I haven't failed. The business has failed, but I'm not the business, so I haven't failed. I've shown up every day. I'm a complete success. <laughs> and that's the... And, and, it's the same with everything. If I lend my name to something external, if I lend my identity, my welfare, my, the, the source of my happiness, if I place anything, that, anything like that outside myself, it's vulnerable. Because anything in the world is vulnerable. And then I'm going to have demands and this mustn't be threatened. And that's where all the fear comes from. If my whole basis for living is I'm going to rely on my higher power. I'm going to say, higher power, you just give me the things you need me to do today to sort out the, all the stuff in my life. I'm going to get on with those to the best of my ability. And just like with a good employer, you'll get paid, you'll get paid accordingly to how much work you do. Um, it takes the pressure off because then you're relying on God and the channels may change, the jobs may change, the careers may change, the houses may change, the relationships may change. But the source which is delivering all the good stuff to you through those different things doesn't change. And then you can be completely secure. And that's what the tradition, that's one of the things that the traditions are all about. Those are the principles behind the traditions. And the, the other, just one last thing before I open it up again, and we've only got a few more minutes, so 
maybe five more minutes before we, we close up and pass the to pass the could we get a pot as well to pass the pot if we don't have a um um oh yes I'm gonna bring in some Alanon stuff if I may. Um uh a friend of mine uh and if if you're uh upset by uh profanity then just close your ears now. Uh, he says the Al-Anon program boils down to minding your own fucking business and keeping your big fat mouth shut. <laughs> and in tradition 10, it says, I have no opinion on outside issues. And I try and apply when I can tradition 10 in my life and say, I have no opinion on outside issues. What's an outside issue? Anything that doesn't bear on how I'm serving my higher power today which frees up the whole afternoon, it frees up the whole week. <laughs> because my mind will naturally look for all the things that everyone else is doing wrong and come up with how everyone else should be living. That's my basic way of operating without a programme. And in tradition four, it tells me how to have boundaries with other people, which means like in my relationship with my other, I've been with someone for 13 years. Um, and um, he's got his own life. I've got my own life. If we want to do stuff together, we do stuff together. And it's tradition for in practice. I'm autonomous. I can do what I want as long as it doesn't affect someone else. He can do what he wants as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. What he does in his life, none of my business. What I do in my life, none of his business. We have a joint life together, and on that we, we have the group conscience. What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? But it means you maintain, even in a relationship, and this is the answer to lots of the sex and love stuff, is that you maintain um, your own private domain, and you are allowed to have this private domain, and you are not obliged to answer questions about it. You're not obliged to disclose everything just because you're in a friendship or a relationship with someone. You are allowed that private domain, and that will free up lots of space emotionally inside, in my experience. So I think there's, I hope that's a little bit of a fly into what the traditions can do. Um, any, any other last thoughts that people have? Yeah, Joe Alcoholic, just wanted to add, um, uh, first of all, when I started to read this book, Traditions and for, for um, sponsors and sponsees, it was a really simple thing of know the short form of each tradition, so learn them. And I realised that I hadn't learned them, so I won't know how to apply them if I have to keep looking at my book and I don't know them. So mm. to learn, learn it, to learn the tradition that you're working on, so have that in your mind and then... Um, work with the questions that are, are, are sort of presented to you through that and there's four or five different areas like work, family aim, you know, things like that the other thing was coming back to I think, you know, going through the steps step 10 it talks about love and tolerance is our code going back to uh, your share if you don't mind me uh, cross sharing, I actually have had that experience too how do I bring this, first of all I didn't know the tradition so I'm trying to bring something into it that I don't know so I'm, I'm flying blind as it were Secondly, if I go to any situation um, with fear or think I'm going to be manipulative, I'm usually, um, my subconsciously, I'm manifesting that. So I have to go to it with a sense of like the first three traditions, knowing that the outcome is nothing to do with me. If that group consciousness has been taken, if you can bring something to a group, say like a, you know, a, 
a family group or a work group or something, if I'm taking a suggestion and it's done within that group conscious like was done on the bus, the outcome has to be literally none of my business because it's the second tradition that's been, like, that's what I'm understanding. I don't know if anybody else has any, um, can elaborate on that, but that's, that's how I kind of, you know, when I'm going into something fearfully or trying to get an outcome of a specific outcome, the one that I think's right, again, it's not the group conscience, is it? So I, I guess um, knowing very little about the traditions trying to learn, I mean I don't actually, I think I probably do know more than I, I, I sort of say, but subconsciously it's like how do I actually activate that within a situation and I, until I know it, I don't think I can activate it, I need to learn it and um, understand what the meaning behind the tradition is. Um, and I was going to ask about tradition 10 because, but you just covered it, um, what, what, is an outside issue, not within a group, but outside in the world, because there's a lot of things going on and disturbances around things like, you know, what's going on. And then it's like, well, part of me is like, not who am I, but what, how do I get to be useful in that situation without having an opinion on it? And I kind of know what to do, like keep my big fat mouth shut and whatever, but it's like, how can I really be useful? So you kind of covered it. I get it. I think it's time, isn't it, and learning. And one other question I had was if anybody has ever sort of approached the traditions and wanted to go through them or started, if anyone has any suggestions or ideas on how to make a start, um, really, that's it. Yeah. Anyone else want to add anything? I can send out on the mailing list some, some worksheets on the traditions which have got lots of ideas and quotations taken from lots of different sources. Um, and just, just um, uh, uh, one thing um, that occurred to me uh, based on what both of you were, were sharing is when you're discussing things in a group, so you're applying the whole group conscience thing with people, um, two tips I was given, one was an Al-Anon one, it's an Al-Anon slogan called wait, which is why am I talking? <laughs> <laughs> and the long version of that is when you're considering whether to say something in a group conscience, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said right now? And that knocks nine out of ten things I consider contributing. Uh, and the third one is another Al-Anon slogan which is really helpful in a group, a group situation is to say, how important is it? And only not to make a burning issue out of small things, but only to launch in on when it's really important. And that really helps in, in, in group situations, in my experience. Okay. Shall we pass the pot? Thank you.